Welcome to the Proud to be Profane podcast, your initiation into the ways of the square to resurrect the wretch and pee on the all-seeing pyramid of Illuminati enlightenment. And now, here's your host, Mr. Michael Joseph. Welcome to the Proud to be Profane podcast. Welcome to episode number 23. And that can't help but remind me of the movie, The Number 23, with Mr. Jim Carrey, who unfortunately seems to have lost his marbles in the last few years, which happens to all of us from time to time. But let's set aside celebrity gossip and get back to the point. In the movie, The Number 23, the introduction is rather strange, where they make allusions to the types of things we'll be talking about today with Mr. James Perloff, the battle between the old world Christian empire and the new world order. And so some of the little flickers of information given in the intro are talking about the Knights Templar, the execution of Charles I, killing of the king, the number of letters in Latin, the language of the Catholic Church, which of course was stripped out of the Novus Ordo masses. They also referred to the dropping of bombs on Japan. And while the allusion was specifically to Hiroshima, we know that Nagasaki was called the Rome of Japan for its large predominance of Roman Catholicism. The intro also talks about witches' sabbaths, which are tied to the Inquisition, albeit as propaganda. Then they talk about Shakespeare's birth. Was he a Mason? Was he a Catholic? There's a lot of debate where they try to claim him for both sides or claim that someone else wrote the works. There's allusions to FDR, the Freemason, and George Herbert Walker Bush, who was talking about the New World Order. They also flash the date of 9-11 and the passage, Get Behind Me, Satan, from Matthew. There's also an allusion to the Illuminati in 1723, which is odd because we would think of 1776, but that's the year that the Constitutions of the Freemasons was given by James Anderson, a Protestant pastor who became a Mason and that became the first Masonic document published in America, which decreed the Masons to be Noahides. And we know that Bush Sr. had something to do with bringing those into the public sphere. On 326, the date of the Gematria of Jesus in Hebrew. And all of these themes will relate to our discussion today on ecumenism and Christian Zionism with Mr. James Perloff. Welcome back to another P2BP episode, and today we have a guest, Mr. James Perloff, who is one of the few returning guests, and we're going to discuss a number of different things related to the New World Order and religion, in particular uh, Christian Zionism, and also the idea of ecumenism akin to Freemasonry theosophy and the ideas of one world religion. So, James, welcome back. Well, Mike, you, uh, thank you so much for having me back on the podcast. And uh, you and I have, have enjoyed some uh, some lunches together. And I, I know you're a remarkably informed uh, person. Uh, I, you know, I, I don't know too many people who, from the time they learned about the New World Order, came along so fast. And I, I learned a lot from you. So I 
appreciate uh, the insights you give. Uh, you remind me a little bit of Tim Kelly and his podcast. I always learn a lot from him and always learn a lot from you too. Well, thank you. I appreciate it. And uh, certainly the podcast I did with you and Tim Kelly sent me into the direction that I am now. So I'm very thankful for you guys both on that. But today, we're since our topic has revolved around religion and the New World Order and Christian Zionism, I guess we'll start out asking, what is your religious background growing up? And then how did your spiritual life evolve to where you are today? Okay. I grew up in uh, an agnostic home. We were not uh, churchgoers. I mean, a couple of times we went to church just for totally ulterior motives. There was some ulterior motive involved. Uh, we didn't have a relationship with God. Uh, we didn't pray, uh, didn't read the Bible or anything like that. I had a number of issues going on uh, in my life that were bad enough, but it would have been helped if we had some relationship with God. And so uh, my youth was a very hard struggle. And in my early 20s, I got involved with a new age cult, a totally non-Christian cult. I won't, I won't give the name, but I was inv involved with it for about 10 years. And the reason I got involved was uh, simply dissatisfaction with my own life. I was not going well. My re relationships were not going well. I did not succeed very well at things that I did. And uh, this particular cult offered um, self uh, uh, well, assistance, uh, ways of helping you out, and some of which were valid. But I ultimately learned that they are you know, connected with the New Age and the New World and any sort of um, technology or techniques they had really come from the dark side, you know, fallen, fallen beings do know technology. We see that right in the book of Enoch, where they, they brought new technologies to the earth. And so they can look, a new age movement can look like it's helpful. Um, but um, ultimately, uh, I found that it was demonic. And I, I also saw, I could clearly see that a lot of the teachings were false. And I got out of it. That was a, I got out of it in uh, early 80s. And I started to get drawn to Christianity. One thing that drew me Christianity was reading Gary Allen's book, Nandere Call of Conspiracy, which started me down the path of writing on geopolitical affairs. And uh, one thing I learned from that book was that people who opposed the New World Order, by and large, were Christians. And that drew me a little bit to Christ. Uh, but also, uh, while I was in the cult, I, wrote, I read a um, New Age version of the gospel. It was called the Aquarian Gospel of Jesus the Christ. Now, this particular gospel, it, it tried to make it sound like Jesus got all his his wisdom and his powers from going to the Far East and studying with the ancient um, wise men of the East. Of course, it didn't explain why these, these wise men didn't have the ability to uh, heal the lame and cure, raise the dead and cure the blind, which they should have if they, was, they were Jesus' teachers. But um, nonetheless, I started to get drawn out of this cult and towards Christianity. And um, the first church I attended was a Pentecostal church because um, they have a focus on, at least the Pentecostal church I went to had a focus on the Holy Spirit, and I was suffering with some problems that I um, I was hearing that the Holy Spirit could help with. At that same time, there was a lot of Christian media that started to appear. Um, I didn't realize it at the time. Looking back, and I realized that one reason Christian media started to appear was that the Likud had taken power in uh, Israel, and a new phase in American foreign policy was going to begin, and required that there be a Christian backing for Israel. And so pastors who were willing to support Israel would get a lot of media uh, attention. And uh, one thing, you know, I, I look at Hollywood a lot, and 
one thing that always surprised me was in uh, Chariots of Fire in 1980 getting the uh, Best Picture Oscar. It was kind of unusual for Hollywood to take a, a film with a religious message and give it an Oscar, but the core of that message was the unity between Christians and Jews, which is something that was going to characterize the coming decades and they were going to get the Christian American world to fight on behalf of Israel. Uh, by the way, it was a great film. It was a well-acted, well-directed film, no, no question about that. But there were, there were changes taking place I didn't fully understand. But one thing that did come out of Christian media was that I did start to develop a relationship with Christ. It was very positive. I was a registered nurse. Uh, I had graduated in 1975, but had not really taken my work as seriously as I should. And one thing coming to Christ did for me was that I started to improve my character. I went back, I started actually studying my old school textbooks, not for grades, because I was out of school, but to really understand that I wanted to become professional. And so Christianity had a very positive effect on me. The kind of churches I started to gravitate towards as I became a conservative in my political outlook were conservative churches. And these were the evangelical churches, not the sort of watered down modern churches that didn't really believe a lot of what the gospel had to say. These conservative churches were, you know, they're anti-abortion and anti-gay marriage, things like that. And they believed that the Bible was the word of God. And this is pretty solid for me. But what happened, uh, Michael, after uh, a long time in these churches, I started to hear things that weren't true. And I also started to see a transformation where these churches were starting to become extremely pro-Israel. And we're starting to talk about not Christianity, but Judeo-Christianity. And they started to surrender a lot of um, their Christian theology to Jewish ideas. And I started hearing it preached that, you know, we're just in a series of dispensations. And right now, we're in the dispensation of grace under Jesus. But we're going to return to a Jewish area, era in which uh, we're going to go back to having a temple. And Jesus is going to rule for the temple. We're going to go back to the Jewish sacrifices. And I knew this was nonsense. All you have to do is read the book of Hebrews. And you know that we're done with that. I also heard a lot of pro-war preaching from the pulpit, uh, glorification of war and American exceptionalism and how, how righteous we are and how our wars in the Middle East are for the defense of our liberties, which I know that our uh, wars in the Middle East are for, for other purposes and certainly are not related to the defense of our liberties. Now, I can get into uh, wars and I do believe there is such a thing as a just war, but I, I would not characterize our neocon wars in the Middle East as, as being that at all. Um, again, we can elaborate on that, but I'm, I'm talking a little too long here. But in any event, I finally found myself being driven from the evangelical churches by false teachings combined with this um, conflating of Uncle Sam with God I mean, and, and, and patriotism and Christianity becoming more and more uh, part of the same uh, ideology. And I, I finally reached a point where I just, I turned to my son one day and I said, you know, son, I, I can't take this one day longer. I, I, I'm a geopolitical writer, you know, Michael, I've been a journalist since 1985, 35 years. And I can, I was being taught things in the pulpit that I knew were glaringly false and I had to get out of there. So I started attending, this is back around 2016. I started attending a uh, evangelical church at least was at less less pro-war, uh, less pro-Israel. But I knew that I, I, I wanted to hang my hat somewhere. I sort of had thought that evangelical conservative churches were sort of the last bastion for Christianity, but I found that they weren't. One thing I've learned as a writer is that uh, the further back you go back in time, often the further you get towards the truth. And 
um, after listening to Brother Nathaniel, who I, I'm sure you must be familiar with, and I went on um, radio with Jay Dyer, who's an Orthodox Christian, as is Brother Nathaniel. And before I went on the show, I listened to a talk uh, between uh, Dean Arnold and Jay Dyer, where they talked about how they both converted to Orthodox Christianity. And they started looking at it, and I was stunned to find that the Orthodox Christians still use the same liturgy, the same liturgy of St. John Chrysostom from the fourth century, which is the century in which Constantine legalized Christianity. They have maintained the stability of worship. And uh, so this finally led me to the Orthodox Church, and I was baptized into the Orthodox Church in 2017. The reason I was had to be baptized, I do accept baptism from other denominations, but I was baptized in a very unconventional way <laughs> in the 1980s. And so the church did make a very reasonable decision that I should be rebaptized. So I was, and I've been in the Orthodox Church since. So that's kind of my journey uh, from being a complete unbeliever to being a New Ager, to being an evangelical Christian, to finally coming home to a very traditional form of Christianity. Is the Orthodox Church you go to, is that uh, specific to, is it like Russian or Greek or which part of the Orthodox would you say you're uh, established with? Well, I happen to be going to a Greek Orthodox Church, and I have to admit that uh, the reasons for that are practical. I have to say that, uh, in all honesty, and I probably will not, you know, endear myself to any fellow Greek Orthodox when I say this, I think that the most serious of all the Orthodox churches is the Russian Orthodox Church, and I think that's became this because they came out of the fire of Bolshevism. They suffered very greatly, which is not to say that the Greeks have not suffered. They suffered under the Ottomans. And they suffered under what they call the Greek uh, genocide that took place in the early part of the 20th century when there was a horrific war between Turkey and Greece. And many Greeks, uh, one, one and a half million Greeks were expelled from Turkey. And this actually is one of the things that brought Greek Orthodoxy to the United States. Well, I happen to live in New England and we have um, Holy Cross uh, Seminary here and we have a great many Greek parishes and being um, actually, my family came from Russia, the Perlots came from Russia, but we were not ethnically Russian, we were Jewish. I'm half Jewish myself. My mother was Western European and came from a nominal Protestant family. I would have gone to a, a, a Russian Orthodox church, I think, but there were none near me. And as I'm getting older, I wanted to be close to an Orthodox church that I can regularly participate in, uh, you know, take part in in uh, studies there and attend church on time and things of that nature. So I uh, I called up uh, the uh, nearest Orthodox church to me with a wonderful priest who's a sixth generation priest in his family. I've been there ever since, and I do very much appreciate my brothers and sisters in, in, in Christ there and very happy to be there. So I am in the Orth uh, Greek Orthodox church, and, and there's, uh, I, should, I should mention that whether you've got a Syrian Orthodox church or an Antiochian church, the liturgy is pretty much the same. I, I just think that the Russian Orthodox probably are a little more strict in their following of their faith and a little bit more wise to the ways of the world uh, than some of the branches of Orthodoxy. Nonetheless, I'm very glad to be here. Yeah, and in terms of your journey, I think a lot of people, when they get in you know, to the alternative media or whatever people want to call it, the truther world, as people say, you know, usually... It is some sort of experience that leads them there into, I guess, more new age ideas or a more mm -hmm. Protestant type viewpoint. 
And I think a lot of the times that these things in an odd way are kind of like a dialectic of each other where they're opposed with certain things. They'll argue about the literal uh, aspects of the Bible or Jesus's divinity, things of that nature. But then there are some odd things that tend to overlap and they kind of agree on. They usually tend to be sort of leaning towards enlightenment principles or at least the propaganda that came out of the enlightenment. And so despite them claiming they're against the New World Order, they certainly promote a lot of its history just in this dialectical fashion. And that's interesting because I think that you can have the uh, flip side with the Protestantism where they become much more pro-Israel and everything becomes about Israel. And then you have this side of Protestantism that's very anti that. And then in the, uh, I guess, the more New Age or pagan uh, versions of the alternative media, they're either kind of in that Gnostic ideology and a more liberal ideology, or they become more alt-right and then they're more, they're still hostile to uh, Christianity. And they're especially hostile to uh, European Christianity because a lot of them will think that their Nordic ancestors had Christianity forced upon them and all these sorts of things. So there's just these weird oppositions that happen, but they tend to have these unifying factors that I think, and I'm sure you probably agree, are still fundamentally anti-Christian in terms of that old world sense of Christendom where they promote both the propaganda against it and yet they still blame it for the problems of today. And then you had the Reformation so-called leading the charge, whereas the Enlightenment really was the separating factor. And I find that a lot of those Enlightenment principles really carry over and it doesn't really matter which direction you go you kind of get led into one of these fundamental things that's a big problem, despite a lot of good things you find and a lot of good people you find at the same time. And that's what's so frustrating about it, because you like a lot of the people and there's a lot of things that do help, but it's also there with something that's very poisonous. And if you get into that poison a little bit too much, it doesn't really matter. You're still in a bad place. And so for you being able to identify some of those elements of Judaism being overly promoted that certainly were not in line with what you knew to be true. I mean, that as long as you can see that red flag and get out, I think that that's, you know, the best anyone can do in those situations. Yeah, uh, I think, uh, you know, I've certainly encountered New Agers in uh, uh, a wide variety of religious viewpoints, uh, myself as an old media person. And I think part of the problem is that uh, people have been exposed to the wrong type of Christianity. Uh, they see, you know, for example, the Vatican having um, some sexual predators within it. And they see the Pope and is in, uh, issuing an encyclical on climate change. And uh, then they see the Christian Zionists supporting Israel and suppressing, you know, uh, that's Israel, of course, is suppressing ethnically cleansing the Palestinians. And they get uh, a very dim view of Christianity. And so it it takes certainly some uh, taking apart of the history of Christianity and how these things came apart. Um, but to be sure, we're made in the image of God. And you know, I wrote a couple of books. I didn't mention this before, but I wrote a couple of books on Darwinism, uh, late 90s, early 2000s. Um, and uh, how, uh, you know, one of the things that led me uh, very, even though I wasn't raised in an agnostic home, one of the things that, that, uh, hardened that for me was in the sixth grade when my teacher was teaching evolution and um he you know and a little girl who was raised as a christian objected and he put her down and said well you know science has proven the bible is wrong and that that's very 
so kind of a very defining moment for me where I said, oh, science is proving the Bible's wrong. It's just a bunch of malarkey. And that was something that pushed me harder into agnosticism uh, at that time, again, the sixth grade. And that's something that a lot of other people have uh, had to happen to them. And it's one reason why I wanted to write a couple of books about Darwinism, because it's really a house of cards, scientifically speaking. But yeah, there, there are a lot of influences out there that have shaped the way people, you know, everybody's got a story. And a lot of people have been... Um, been unfortunately um, misled by false science and misrepresentations of Christianity. For sure. And I think that the other thing that really hit home for me was the history uh, being so important to the tradition of Christianity and how I think Protestantism has done a lot to divorce from that history or, mm -hmm. uh, you know, a lot of times, I know it's a big umbrella of Protestantism, but you see a lot of rhetoric where, you know, Constantine is corrupt. And ever since then, Christianity was never the same. And <laughs> I, I just, I find that now to be laughable where, you know, the, I always make this point. Why is it the thousand years of darkness when they didn't allow usury? <laughs> you know, like that should upset anybody in the alternative media who complains about the federal reserve debt system yet they're also bashing the dark ages where that wasn't allowed. And I think Good that that's point. one of those red flags that's an elephant in the room for people. And I always try to bring that up when I'm discussing these things with people in the alt media, because that should be a red flag as to, well, I, I didn't know that. And uh, maybe the dark ages weren't so dark. And it's really something we have to understand the context of the times. And also, I think coming out of a brutal pagan culture, Maybe some of the um, not so good stuff that happened in Christendom was actually more because of the pagan culture trying to become more Christian rather than it was the Christian culture screwing everything up and we need to go back to paganism. And I think that that's the other side of the oh, yes. the coin with the noble savage of the Enlightenment where everything was fine before Christianity. And ironically, that was really the secret of the Bavarian Illuminati. And uh, I also hear that promoted a lot in the alternative media, and that's always a red flag for me. So with that in mind, I guess uh, let's talk a little bit more about the WASP side of the coin that contributed to this phenomenon of Christian Zionism. So for you, in the articles you wrote a while back that we're kind of basing this podcast discussion on, you talk about a strange ecumenism that interweaves between theosophy and Masonic concepts, but with Protestant pastors and different aristocratic figures. And so where do you think that some of this stuff began to take root and who are some of the key figures? I know you mentioned Charles Augustus Briggs and the, the Dulles brothers and Rockefeller. So any uh, insights you can give us on that? Yeah. Well, I should mention how that I came to write that. It was some years ago. Um, believe it or not, I was actually hired by an American Christian to investigate why Christianity was declining in America and this was from a totally uh, Protestant evangelical perspective. You know, I had never been Catholic and I was certainly not Orthodox at the time, but anybody could see that the churches were being watered down and beliefs were declining and Christianity was losing its force in America. And uh, even though the Protestants had been sort of part of the problem, uh, they themselves were being uh, led further and further away from Christ. So I did investigate. And as so often happens, you find that things don't happen by accident. And uh, what I found was that the uh, Rockefellers had been the um, main financial force in changing American Christianity and began funding seminaries that would teach modernism. Now, what modernism, actually, the, I don't know if they still have it or not, but Wikipedia had a pretty good piece called the uh, Modernist Fundamentalist Split. But 
what happened was um, the modernists began teaching things of higher criticism, which had already been taught in, in Europe, but came into America in the 1890s. Charles Augustus Brigg was probably the, the, the main uh, teacher of that. He was a professor at Union Theological Seminary, which the Rockefellers funded. And modernism taught things such as the Bible was full of errors. The books were not written by the people who was, was supposedly written by. And there were no miracles by Jesus, and there was no virgin birth, and there was no resurrection, and uh, he was not divine, and he was basically just a wise person, and at its you know utmost, modernism would teach that Jesus didn't even exist. Now, this wouldn't be true of all churches or seminaries, but they these were the kind of ideas that were introduced, and what's interesting, of course, is that these were not, you know, when you go to a Bible study, you know, you'll quibble over the meaning of a great passage of scripture. What did Paul really mean when he said that? But this was not like that. This, these were actually repudiations of the entire faith, uh, the most basic teachings that the Rockefellers were funding. And there was a critical event that took place in 1922. And uh, this really shows the Rockefeller hand. And it was Harry Emerson Fosdick who got his picture on the cover of Time. And he delivered this sermon called The Shell of Fundamentalist Wind. And he preached all these uh, modernist doctrines, and it shocked the congregation and his tried for heresy. And interestingly enough, his attorney who represented him at his heresy trial was uh, an in-law of the uh, the Rockefellers, uh, John Foster Dulles, who he's uh, Mr. Establishment. You know, he was a founding member of the Council for Relations. He was the chief counsel of the American delegation at the Paris Peace Conference of 1919, and he helped write the UN Charter, and uh, his brother, Alan Dulles, was a, uh, you know, founded the CIA, and he was, yeah. John Foster was a uh, secretary of the state, he was all over the place, you know, but he was very, very uh, big into uh, the uh, the modernist movement, but Harry Emerson Fosdick, um, after he was fired as a pastor of a First Presbyterian in New York, he was immediately hired as the pastor of John D. Rockefeller's church, Riverside, and uh, John D. Rockefeller paid for 130,000 uh, copies of his controversial sermon to be uh, printed and distributed to Protestant ministers. And also, it's interesting that uh, uh, Harry Emerson Fosdick's brother, Raymond Fosdick, was the president of the Rockefeller Foundation. So you, you really can see the Rockefellers playing a very big hand and modernism funding these ideas and bringing them to the fore in order to degrade Christianity. And when I, uh, Michael, when I, when I looked at this, I found there were three basic elements that the Rockefellers were behind. Number one was what I just talked about, modernizing the faith and, and watering it down. Number two was to establish ecumenical structures like the National Council of Churches, which were to become the basis of ultimately one world religion. They went from the world count, the National Council of Churches to the World Council of Churches, and uh, John Foster Dulles was involved with, with both. And the other thing they were involved with was the downgrading of doctrine in favor of uh, missionary work that would emphasize things like uh, better sanitation and medical work, which is very good, of course, but the idea was to degrade the emphasized Christian doctrine because what they wanted ultimately was for Christianity to be watered down to the extent that it was just another religion and ultimately you could you could combine these into uh, a one world religion. That's sort of the way I divided it. And in my uh, article, which I wrote for this a gentleman who hired me, uh, I asked him eventually, could I publish this as a chapter in my book? He said I could. And then it also, I also put it on my website, and you'll find that uh, in, it's in my book, Chapter 17, 
uh, Truth is a Lonely Warrior. It's called The War on Christianity, Part One. And it's also my, my website uh, under the same title um, for people who would like to read it for free. But it's, it's again, it's the whole history of, the, of how the Rockefellers, really as a satellite of the Rothschilds, were uh, assigned the role of uh, destroying Christianity. They did not so much intrude upon Catholicism. They were not Catholics, but I did notice that they were, uh, you as a Catholic would, would could comment on this much more, but I noticed that there were comparable things happening in, in Catholicism with modernism being introduced through uh, Vatican II and Darwinism being introduced by uh, Pierre Teilhard de Chardin and, uh, you know, uh, homosexuality coming in and all the same things we see in Protestantism. So there was an analog and an analogy taking place in Catholicism. But, but the Rockefellers that were behind the, the modernist movement and the ecumenical movement, and that's what this this first article we're talking about now is chiefly about. Yeah, and I think that this is sort of interesting because this is kind of like the stereotypical capitalist side of the coin. You know, you get the robber barons, and this is one of the accusations that capitalism really came out of Protestantism, even if some of these original reformers were against usury. It's kind of interesting that the opposite kind of happened where the Protestant nations became most known for being the capitalist ones. So it's kind of a it, it's kind of a funny thing where you set a standard of what something is about and then, you know, 60 years later it completely gets reversed and so you have this strange uh attachment to the Rockefellers where when I was looking into them, I guess I was expecting to find a lot of like occult stuff in their earlier families, but they were tied to, you know, a lot of these Protestant type denominations. And I found that some of the occult ideas really started coming in more um, with uh, like Edith Rockefeller. She actually financed Carl Jung and he was into all this Gnostic occultism. And Jung actually worked as an OSS agent under Dulles, um, hmm. uh, agent number 488. Uh, interesting. Uh, you know, uh, uh, Alistair Crowley worked for MI6. It's interesting how these guys are attached to uh, intelligence services. Yeah, and so it's the uh, Anglo-American intelligence, and they have uh, these guys who are into all this occultism and synchronicity of religions. And one of the points that I make in my occult Catholicism series in the thumbnail is I use the picture of Rockefeller Center with Atlas standing in opposition to St. Patrick's Cathedral, which was built in the 19th century, which really represents the old world Catholicism because there was a <laughs> lot of Catholic immigration coming over into America and the Masonic Protestant establishment was kind of freaking out about it. <laughs> and uh, this, uh, the Know Nothing Party, which Albert Pike was a part of, they were trying to actually divert the issues on slavery to attack Catholicism and immigration and say, this is the number one threat to American liberty. And so... There is a whole hidden history about anti-Catholicism in the 19th century in America, and it's really crazy if you read the propaganda against it. And so I think that Rockefeller building their modernist center in all this modernist architecture across from the old world Gothic cathedral is kind of making a statement. And they worked hard to get that space. I researched it a bit. Uh, they certainly uh, maybe made some shady deals, business deals. Uh, forcing some people out of the uh, the rental spaces in that area. And they waited on a guy to die because there was a lawsuit. He filed it and he's like 90 years old and then he died and then they got control. And they they certainly spent a lot of effort to get that plot of land across from the Catholic cathedral. 
So I found that to be very symbolic in terms of opposing the old world Christendom. And then at some point, like you said, you know, during the mid 20th century, that's where all this stuff started infiltrating the church with the Pierre Telhard de Chardins and a lot of the liberal theologians in Vatican II and stuff like that. And um, it's pretty interesting. I was looking at this recently. Vatican I, the reason, one of the main reasons that the uh, the Jesuits were trying to get the papal infallibility because they wanted to uh, dogmatize the syllabus of errors, which would basically reject all of modernism as a dogma in the Catholic mm-hmm. Church. But what happened was a Masonic war broke out and that stopped the council short, so they only barely got some of the things passed. And that's something that people don't tend to know about, that if that had actually gone through, there would be no modernism in the church as a dogma because of the ultramontane Jesuits who everyone thinks are the evil bad guys. So kind of an interesting, fun fact. But uh, when you look into the 19th century, I think that that really gives you a lot of insights into stuff that happened in the 20th century. So little digression there, but let's move away from the capitalist side of the coin well then on the opposite side of that you have like the more marxist people who are more openly hostile to christianity so they're kind of tied to the same goals but supposedly they're also against each other and uh you mentioned in your article people like walter uh rosenbush rosenbush rauschenbush rauschenbush yeah there you go. Uh, <laughs> i don't know how to pronounce it uh yeah it's a tough one to pronounce uh uh but he was uh well, what does he call him? Um, like the father of Christian socialism. It's probably not correct. He said that only religion can make socialism work. He was a socialist and a Christian. And uh, uh, another was Harry F. Ward, who um, ironically, he was a pastor, Reverend Harry F. Ward. He taught at Union Theological, not surprisingly, for 23 years. He was also a fa- the founding chairman of the American Civil Liberties Union, which, of course, is an opponent of Christianity. And um, he was pro-Bolshevik. And how can you be a Bolshevik and a Christian at the same time? Why are you getting funded by the Rockefellers? Talk about a weird a weird combination, right? But um, there's always been – I learned about this for the John Birch Society in the 1980s, that there was this um, this union between um, the rich and the, the communists, which I which, which was hard to understand because you, I always grew up with the idea that the, the Rockefellers and the communists were arch enemies, right? But – if you look at it, I'm just going to, just because this is null in my memory, let me just quote some things from uh, my book, Truth of the Lonely Warrior. Uh, sorry to quote myself, but um, uh, quote the, the quoting that the Ford Motor Company supplied the Bolsheviks with 24,000 trucks and trained Russian mechanics. Later, the Fords helped the Soviets build their huge Gorky motor vehicle truck plant, which produced trucks that rolled down Vietnam's Ho Chi Minh Trail, lured with supplies to kill American GIs. 1970s, Chase Manhattan, that's the Rockefellers, financed construction of the Camera River plant, the world's largest truck factory, which the Soviets converted into building trucks for the invasion of Afghanistan. Uh, the communist awarded David Rockefeller uh, his private plane landing rights in Moscow and gave Chase Manhattan space for its Russian headquarters at 1 Karl Marx Square. Um, Avril Harriman, founder of Brown Brothers Harriman, was a prototype of Wall Streeter. Yet the well, the Soviets granted him a 20-year monopoly on mining their manganese, he formed a joint shipping, and arranged to sell their government bonds. Arm and Hammer, chair of Occidental Petroleum, made a fortune mining Russian asbestos, built factories for the Soviets, shipped some wheat, laundered their money. Um, the Soviets gave Tsarist art treasures, and like David Rockefeller, he was permitted to land his private jet in Moscow. Uh, the American industrial Cyrus Eaton, who started working out for John D. Rockefeller, 
supplied the Russians with textiles, leather goods, and pharmaceuticals, and the Soviets awarded him the Lenin Peace Prize, unquote. That's just quoting myself because I don't have all that stuff memorized, right? But um, yeah, there's this amazing um, support for uh, the Soviet Union by the uh, the capitalists in America. And I even remember that um, a lot of people thought it was no coincidence that Khrushchev was fired right after David Rockefeller visited uh, the Soviet Union in 1964. There was always this uh, behind-the-scenes harmony, uh, whereas we were looking at what was supposed to be the Cold War, yet you have people like David Rockefeller with his private jet getting landing rights in Moscow. I mean, what's going on, you know? So um, uh, one of the things that um, that I uh, learned was, you know, when you look at the capitalists and their plan for New World Order and the Rothschilds with their 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 plan to a world moral government headquartered in Jerusalem, they they the the rich and 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 the the, the Jewish bankers they didn't have the manpower to uh, overthrow government, so they needed Freemasons and communists at the street level to do that. And I found a, a quote which I think summarized it pretty well. This is from. Uh, Nicholas Murray Butler of the Fabian Society said this in 1937, he said, quote, communism is the instrument with which the financial world can topple national governments and then erect a world government with the world police and world money, end quote. So in other words, the global elite, they need foot soldiers, and that's always taken the form of, you know, the, the low-level Freemasons and, and the street-level communists. They need those people, and thus you have this harmony that you get ultimately, they they certainly uh, want a Stalinist communist style uh, totalitarian system. Yet at the same time, they need the the uh, finance of Rothschild and Rockefeller to back up all of this. It's it's really not incongruous, but uh, even though it, it may look that way to people who have had you know the standard uh, schooling, exactly. And that's kind of the dialectic that a lot of people tend to understand the alternative media. To varying degrees. And I think that you have it in the temporal sense here with capitalism and communism. And then you have it also, I think, in the spiritual sense with um, some of these Protestant wasp moguls or, um, you know, Jewish conservatives like the Rothschild. And then you have it on the flip side with the New Age or Gnostic type as the uh, spiritual version of the Marxist communist types, because I noticed that uh, when I looked into the French Revolution, a lot of the Masonic propaganda going on that led to the the Grand Orient and, you know, some of the ideas that you can find in the Bavarian Illuminati that you can see with like the Jacobins and stuff, that was all the radical Bolshevik type of stuff, which really destroys, right? And the uh, idea is that it came from Britain and they didn't promote the radical version in Britain because they didn't want to destabilize their society. They had the constitutional monarchy and Rothschild was, uh, as far as I've read, even lobbying for constitutional monarchies. They seem to like to live in those areas. And <clears throat> so it's pretty interesting how you have the Masonic revolutions going crazy, destroying the Holy Roman empire after a thousand years from 800 to 1800 with Napoleon and then the Rothschild lends loans to all those <laughs> Christian nations that just warred with each other. And masonry was really the the big bang moment, if you will, uh, in the French Revolution and coming out and just spreading that everywhere. And then you have two of the Rothschild's sons, I think it's James and Nathan, the, the bankers in London and Paris. They were initiated into Freemasonic lodges in London. So you have these radical anti-government masons running around. 
And then you have these British Masons, like the Rothschilds being part of, that are promoting the constitutional monarchies. They seem to be at odds with each other in the public face or in universities, but when you actually look behind the scenes, they kind of go together like peas and carrots, and they're all at the expense of the old world empire. And so I think maybe transitioning into the the idea of infiltration into the Catholic churches, East or West, you know, I think that that's another thing that a lot of people in the alternative media don't understand, that this is a coordinated plan. You can even read in Morals and Dogma uh, how Pike says that this is the plan of universal masonry to try to infiltrate the Catholic Church and rule it behind the scenes with a veil of uh, Christianity, but the actual doctrine is Masonic equilibrium of religions, right? And so uh, maybe, uh, I don't know if you wanted to talk a little bit more about any sort of ecumenism throughout the years involved in the uh, the Catholic Church, the Vatican, but also uh, the Orthodox side. Um, I know you talked about Patriarch Bartholomew, Pope Francis, and things like that. So any insights there I think would be interesting. Um, well, certainly the, uh, the Masons have uh, been traditional enemies, both of the Orthodox and the uh, Western churches. We're not so aware of that, I guess, in the West, because, you know, you and I grew up in the West, and my only exposure to Christianity, limited as it was when I was growing up, was that, you know, you had the Catholics and the Protestants. I didn't even know that the East and North had existed. Basically, I probably read it one time in school, and that was it. Um, but um, to be sure, Masonry and Protestantism kind of went together. I think that um, Protestantism was a, uh, a method of uh, destabilizing Christianity. Uh, it was part of the divide and conquer strategy. And of course, once Protestantism took root, then it started to divide to the extent that now the World Council of Churches, I don't know what the latest figures are, but I know they have hundreds of denominations represented in the World Council of Churches. Whereas, you know, in the first millennium, you basically had one church it was united, but Satan operates on a divide and conquer strategy. And certainly from my reading of history, I get the impression that was definitely collusion between the Masons and the Protestants against the Catholic Church, even though at its deepest roots, for sure, the uh, Masons would have been even anti-Protestant. They would have uh, been entirely, you know, the upper levels, the Luciferian levels, they would have been against um, God in any, you know, the Christian God in any form. Then, of course, uh, there's a whole question of um, ecumenicism. So one of the, the key questions is a strategy to divide the church or to unite the church. And my impression, generally, Michael, is that his initial strategy was to divide the church, the, the split of 1054 between East and West, then the uh, present split in uh, the 1500s, and then more and more splintering. And this is kind of like the Israeli plan of balkanization. You know, you you get groups divided into smaller and smaller um, uh, uh, fracturizations of of, uh, of Christianity. And then after you've got them whittled down to these small groups, then you unite them into a one world religion. So I think that initially Satan's plan was to divide the church and then to conquer it and unite it. Uh, so that's kind of why that you have that dichotomy of division and unity. Initially, you divide it. Then once it's all splintered and confused, then, and of course you saw that 19th century too, when you had things like uh, with the Watchtower, you know, Jehovah's Witnesses and um, uh, uh, Christian science and all these newfangled uh, forms of Christianity coming on board and uh, confusing the public more and more as to what true Christianity was. 
But once you, I, I think the ultimate plan, and we haven't really seen that come to fruition yet, but right now we're seeing the coronavirus and the whole world being transformed between our before our eyes. We don't know what's next on the horizon with 5G, but I think that ultimately there would be a one world religion where we sort of bow down. Because, you know, what they want us to bow down be, be, and worship Big Brother or the Antichrist or the Beast or whatever we would call him and be united, united in, in that sense. So what are your thoughts on Patriarch Bartholomew? Do you talk to other Greek Orthodox about any suspicions about him? Is he viewed as similar to Pope Francis? What are your thoughts on him? Well, um, let's see. Uh, getting to my book, um, you know, I had a, a little chapter on Catholicism and some of the ecumenical developments there, which included the Orthodox uh, church. Let me see if I can quickly find that. I, I just listed some of the Catholic Church's uh, ecumenical developments. Uh, chronologically, there was the Declaration of, on the Doctrine of Justification by Lutheran Catholic representatives in 1999, then a dialogue with the Eastern Orthodox Church, which resulted in a common declaration of Pope Benedict XVI and the ecumenical Patriarch Bartholomew I in 2006, then a Catholic Muslim summit uh, at the Vatican in 2008, and then Pope Benedict going to Israel and visiting the Great Synagogue of Rome in 2009. Um, as far as uh, the Eastern Orthodox Church, I'm not as well informed um, as I could be on him. I do know that he basically, even though the Archbishop of Constantinople, the Christian Church is pretty much minimized in uh, uh, Turkey ever since the expulsion of Christians um, around 1920. Um, so he does not really preside over a church so much, even though he's considered the ecumenical patriarch of um, the the church. And I, uh, although I don't hear this so much around the Greek Orthodox Church I attend, I, I don't think I've ever heard it there in private conversations I've had with, you know, some pretty good people who are Orthodox Christians. There is some um, some discussion of um, ecumenical patriarch Bartholomew, similar to what you hear, maybe hear about the Pope. And uh, I was going to just mention that we just had a new um, archbishop in America, his eminence archbishop, I don't know if I'll pronounce this right, Elpid de Foros. Um, just last year, he became the new archbishop, uh, replacing the old archbishop who'd been there since 1999. And looking at his background, just read his biography, he uh, says, quote, he has been an active member of the World Council of Churches, serving on its Central Committee and also serving on its Faith and Order Commission since 1996. And um, it says that he has been a member of patriarchal delegations to the General Assemblies of the Conference of European Churches and the World Council of Churches. So he's been involved with the World Council of Churches. Uh, I don't know that he himself is um, ecumenical in terms of compromising the church at all, or if this was just to get a place at the table for the Orthodox Church uh, at, at the World Council, I don't know. But I do know that uh, there also was a split in the Orthodox Church uh, back in the early 20th century in Greece between the what they call the old calendrist and the new calendrist. Now, what happened was the Greek government decided to adapt the uh, new calendar, to abandon the, abandon the Julian calendar uh, because uh, other countries were 
Am I correct? That's a Gregorian calendar now that we're on. Yeah, that's actually uh, the Protestants resisted the Gregorian calendar because they thought it was a popish plot. <laughs> so for like, okay. a couple hundred years, uh, they didn't adopt it, I think, until the 18th century. So, yeah, the Gregorian came out of the Renaissance era. Right. So I, I'm not an expert on this at all. I'm just superficial on it. But uh, there was a split in the Greek Orthodox Church in Greece. Uh, the There were people who wanted to stick to the old calendar because they could maintain the holidays that way. But the Greek government, I think for fairly practical reasons, wanted to adapt a new calendar. Because, you know, if you're going to conduct commerce with other nations, if you say you're going to deliver a certain product at a certain date, it's important to have a common calendar. And actually, the Julian calendar was a secular calendar. And the Orthodox Church had no problem, Orthodox, I'm talking about Orthodox Catholic being at one church at that time, had no problem adopting that calendar. Um, I thought that adopting the new calendar was fairly reasonable, but there was a split. And I do find that the old calendrists um, are much more alert. They're, they're wary of the World Council of Churches. They're wary of Freemasonry. At the same time, there's sort of a schism within the church, and schisms are dangerous too. You know, splits are dangerous. They split off, and uh, there are old calendrous churches, a few of them in America. Um, uh, I'm not attending one. I'm, I'm attending a, a new calendrous church, which still maintains many faithful traditions of the Orthodox Church. Uh, but you do have that split within Orthodoxy too um, over over the calendar. Um, and again, some of those old calendars seem to be better informed on these issues. Just as I think within uh, Catholicism, have you got the Pope Pius X Society, which attempts to uh, maintain some of the more traditional doctrines of the church and, and not yield to so much to Vatican II and some of the newer traditions of the church? Yeah, that's definitely uh, where you have anything ranging from problems with the Novus Ordo Mass, but the Latin Mass is cool and the Pope is still the Pope, to Sedevacantism, where there hasn't been a Pope since Pope Tithes XII, to there's not uh, there's Benevacantism, where Pope Benedict is somehow still Pope, and then there's SSPX, where no one can seem to figure out if they're actually in schism or not. These are just things that I hear um, but you know, it's, it's funny because in the West, these things are, are much more in our minds because we grew up here. And, uh, I, I know that there's a schism in the Russian Orthodox, the old believers schism, where I think was going on like ominously in like 1666. And, uh, I'd like to know more about that. I just know that, uh, that's a major event for them. But since in the West, we don't know as much about Russian history, that's something that I'd be interested in looking into as well. And so... I think that sometimes with these splits, there seem to be more things intact than with Protestantism. That's what I think tends to happen, whereas Protestantism can split off into a crazy amount of different views on different things. Right. Whereas, at least within these East-West splits within themselves, I think that a certain amount of orthodoxy is maintained, but the key issues are much more minimized. And I think like Vatican II, uh, just my intuition on it, I think that there uh, was a certain amount of ambiguity involved that people just kind of ran with, but there was also a lot of the media collaboration to try to make the more liberal interpretations be the accepted dogma on it, if you will. Right. Oh, of course. Certainly. Yes. Yeah. And the other thing I was going to mention in regards to what you were saying about, you know, some tensions between Eastern Orthodox, I, I tend to notice that a lot more of the Russian Orthodox they tend to have a lot of suspicions of the Eastern Orthodox, uh, excuse me, the uh, Greek Orthodox Church. And I think there's 
plenty of these little debates to go around, but um, I think it's it's interesting because I think that there's healthy <laughs> ecumenical ways of dealing with things mm-hmm. um, where at some point you're going to hit a limit and be like, OK, we got to agree to disagree on this and move on from this argument because everyone's rehashing the same points that have been going on for a thousand years on it. And, um, you know, there's times in history where I see the Eastern or the Russian Orthodox and then like the Catholic uh, empires working together, like in the revolutions of 1848, all these Masons are causing problems in Europe. And then the Russian czars were working with the Habsburgs to suppress the revolution. So probably one of the more uh, proud moments, I would say, of them working together and they have a common enemy in fighting all of this liberalism. So I, it's too bad that people couldn't focus a little bit more on that. <laughs> right. Uh, some of these schisms, uh, they're, they're legitimate, like the calendar debate. Um, but then you have to wonder, is 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 a schism even even a, a greater divide? I know if you go back to the Council of Nicaea, the very first ecumenical council uh, uh, under Constantine in the fourth century, there was a debate then because some of the churches were celebrating a different date for Easter. Now, this the church could have divided over an issue of like that, but finally, the um, the minority group that was celebrating Easter on a on a different date conceded, yes, we'll 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 change the date we celebrate Easter on, and I think that was a good thing. The rights or wrongs of that, I I can't remember now uh, as to who had the more faithful um, date for the celebration of Pascha or Easter. But uh, the fact that the church did not split and become schismatic over that issue and was able to resolve it is a good thing. And this is where, uh, again, you know, the, the calendar debate of the 20th century for the Orthodox Church, I think that's important. But is that more important than the church splitting itself into two different divisions, both claiming to be the true Orthodox Church, which I think serves Satan's divide and conquer plan? So these are difficult issues we need to wrap our heads around and and, and kind of prioritize um, what's most important. So to wrap up, we got uh, about five minutes left or so. Uh, you kind of wrap up the article with the role of scholarship and academia and the materialist or atheist kind of mindset in helping to foster all this. So we have the uh, religious apostates, if you will, uh, succumbing to all of this. And then you have these uh, academic gurus or Pharisees, if you will, and telling everybody how to interpret the Bible. So I don't know if you wanted to wrap up on any of those key figures or issues. Yeah, yeah, that's that's the Jesus Seminar where they had these, uh, Robert Funk organized this thing in 1985 where they'd meet every year and they would have beads, colored beads on whether Jesus definitely said something or probably said it or probably didn't or definitely didn't. And they wound up deciding that there were only two things in the Bible, 2% of the things in the Bible Jesus definitely said and 80% he probably didn't say. And these were people who weren't witnesses. He was just all liberal scholars who held the same liberal views that um, Robert Funko organized this thing. He'd handpicked these liberal scholars that came from liberal, came from Union Theological and Harvard and very liberal theolo- the- theology schools, but this tended to give more validation. Um, the other thing uh, was uh, sweeping um, was uh, the Da Vinci Code. And it was interesting, um, back in the late 70s, and I have not seen it since then, but there was a TV series. It's one of the last things that David Jansen did. David Jansen played the fugitive, if you happen to be familiar with that. 
but he did a series called The Word, and I was watching it, and uh, I was not a Christian at the time, but he was talking about how this new um, Bible had been discovered, and it revealed that Jesus was not really crucified on the cross. And uh, then you look ahead to the Da Vinci Code, and you see how this is all the same, same pattern, you know, the Da Vinci Code, of course, saying that Jesus was not crucified, but he continued after the cross and he married Mary Magdalene. And then after the Da Vinci Code came out, lo and behold, within a few months, the Discovery Channel had a special in which they claimed they'd found the tomb of Jesus and Mary Magdalene. And you can see how everybody was being set up this way. But the the death on the cross of Jesus Christ and the, his resurrection are the central tenets of the Christian faith. So the Da Vinci Code, uh, and going back to this, again, to this David Jansen movie, which I can't speak with clarity about because I haven't seen it since it came out 40 years ago, um, uh, are part of this attack and part of this, you know, modern assault and trying to convince people that scientifically has been proven. And they would not be making these into these high budget movies if an assault on Christianity wasn't on the way. These are the, the Jesus Seminar and the Da Vinci Code are two prime recent examples of that. We could probably also mention Rick Warren. The the Da Vinci Code thing is interesting because, you know, my, my lady was in RCIA, the Nova Soto Church, which that's uh, a whole other debacle I won't get into, but the, the people there were promoting the Da Vinci Code and Mary Magdalene and Christ being married. And that's actually kind of like a conspiracy theory from like the 70s, I think, Holy Blood, Holy Grail, whereas uh, they're promoting Gnosticism. But when you actually read Gnosticism, like the Da Vinci Code isn't even giving Gnosticism its historical viewpoints. It's not even accurate in the Gnostic viewpoint. I'm, you know, So obviously the Gnostic viewpoint would be heretical to Christianity anyways, but the Da Vinci Code isn't even giving the proper Gnostic viewpoint. So it's kind of funny that they've just sort of invented something out of thin air. And I think that when I looked into some of the history, I found that if you apply the same criteria that they use to legitimize Greek classics or any of these sorts of things, and you apply that same criteria to the Bible, then the Bible is actually more valid than so many of those other works. But for some reason, when it comes to the Bible, all of a sudden people shift their goalposts of what's required to validate it. And then they're not even being fair or rational, despite claiming that they themselves are all about reason and empirical data and science. And so why is it that the Bible forces them to shift all their criteria and up the ante on all these other things? And I think one of the most telling things for me when, when I realized that the style of the Gospels was written as a biography, and it was consistent with how they wrote biographies for all these other things that weren't part of the Bible. Mm -hmm. They had the same elements. And then so people try to say, well, these aren't really biographies. They're just kind of like this mythology they're weaving in and stuff like that. But it's not actually consistent with the style they're writing in. So whether you believe in Christianity or not, those people who wrote the Gospels believe that they were writing about a historical events. And if you use that same criteria to judge other biographies, then that's what we call them to be in the ancient world. So that's something that really kind of shocked me is how they have to jump through hula hoops and change the criteria to debunk the historical narrative, whether you believe in it or not. Uh, very true. And if you go back to the writings of Homer or Caesar, 
the existing manuscripts uh, are much, much older than uh, the most recent copies we have of the Gospels, and yet people don't question those. But the reason that the Gospel comes uh, under question is because it uh, calls us to account before God, and people don't want that. A sinful nature does not want us to be accountable before God. We prefer to deny Him so that we can lead the lifestyles we want. And, you know, that was one of the reasons why I so readily accepted Darwinist teachings initially was that, it, you know, it, uh, you know, it takes you off the hook. It means you're, there is no God. So uh, you can make up whatever commandments you want to rule your, your uh, rule your life by. Yeah. And I think that you honestly see some of that in the uh, Lutheran side of the Reformation where a man kind of becomes an animal. He's a slave to his passions and we're totally depraved. Um, and then you kind of go to the Enlightenment, and ironically, they're talking about mankind being free, but their actual philosophical system reduces to we're just animals. Mm-hmm. And that's at the heart of Catholic Christianity, that we have free will, but not these other systems. And so it's kind of ironic that it's about liberty, equality, and fraternity. Everyone's free, but you're free to be an animal. That's kind of the trick, I think, <laughs> of the Enlightenment, and that just no. evolves into Darwinism, right? So. Um, all right. Well, we're about the hour mark, so we can wrap it up for the the first segment here. Did you like uh, want to give us any of the links to your books or any of your uh, recent projects or upcoming projects? Uh, certainly, my website is jamesperloff.com, and it's P E R L O F F. And uh, I've got two books on the New World Order: uh, Truth Is a Lonely Warrior and Thirteen Pieces of the Jigsaw. And if you put those together, you have a fairly complete picture of what's going on uh, right up to 5G, but certainly not including the coronavirus, uh, which is uh, descending us on us with such uh, great uh, rapidity over the past month. Um, I'm also on Twitter as James Perloff, and I am currently working on a book on 9-11, and I hope that the world events don't change so rapidly that I won't get a chance to to complete that. But that's that's my current undertaking. Excellent. Well, thank you for being on, and we will see you in the next hour if you're a subscriber, and I'll put all your links in the description of the video below. Thanks, Michael. To gain access to the second hour, head to www.rockstaresoterica.com and become a member to gain all access to all content at all times. Or to purchase individual episodes such as this one, head to schism206.podbean.com.